Hi, everyone. Good to see all of you. Um, if I've not met you before, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor of the congregation. And as Dawson said earlier, we hope you can stick around after the service. And congratulations to all of you who have survived uh, school holidays, long weekend, daylight savings, and grand final weekend. And you're, you're still here. It's great to see all of you. Um, it's already been mentioned that we're um, well into the second half of our Christian doctrines. And today we're going to be looking at what's called the, the, the mission of the church, or the, the Great Commission. And as we go to our next slide, I mentioned as we were talking about the church uh, last week that the Great Commission can really be divided up into two parts, and that's what we're going to be doing today. First of all, Jesus said, go make disciples. And uh, a disciple is just uh, an apprentice student, someone who followed Jesus around in the first century, not only to learn from him, but to learn to be like him. And that is what disciples are to this very day, people who follow Jesus in order to become like him. But the second part of that, as we go to the next slide, is go make disciples of all nations. Um, we're not just meant to keep to ourselves or to our own culture, but to go out into all the world, because the plan of Jesus was that people from every nation, tribe, language, would come to know him. And so that is what we call uh, the Great Commission. If we can just move to our next slide. All of this has everything to do with what we have been talking about in the earlier doctrines. You remember I mentioned last week when we were talking about the church that we're not saying, okay, well, we've talked about God, now we'll talk about some of the other stuff. But when we talk about things like the church, we're looking at Christ's body. And when we talk about the Great Commission, we're talking about what is at the very heart of God. So Jesus, um, after his resurrection, said to his disciples, As the Father has sent me into the world, so I send you into the world. And so the, the logic of that is that God so loved the world um, that he gave up his one and only son, um, he sent Jesus into the world to seek and to save his lost children. That's, that's what God is all about. God is love. God is relationship. And he wants to draw alienated and isolated people back to himself and back to each other. So when Jesus had finished the earthly part of his mission, he spoke to his disciples and said, Okay, God sent me into the world. God gave me the Holy Spirit, his personal presence and power to empower my ministry. Now I'm going to go up into the heavens, but I'm going to pour out my spirit on you, my church, my body, and you as my body will now be my feet and my hands and my mouthpiece. And as I have gone out into the world, now as my body, I send you out into the world. So what we've been talking about over the last two weeks, Jesus' body and the Great Commission has everything to do with who God is and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can just move to our next slide. So this is the, the readings that you've just heard. That This is what's called the Great Commission. Um, then so Jesus gathered his disciples together following his death and resurrection, and he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. The basis for what I'm going to say to you comes from the fact that I am now the king of all kings. I am the Lord of all lords. I am the ruler of heaven and earth, and therefore I have the right 
and the power to say this to you. Since all authority has been given to me, I'm sending you. Now you go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them, and note, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, things that we've been talking about in regard to the Trinity. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Part of the reason that we're gathered here together today, not only to worship God, but to learn, you know, to, to learn everything that God has commanded us. Who is he and what are we meant to be doing? And we don't just do this um, as some sort of a historical club where we go back and look at some history books and try to learn from them. No, he says, I am with you. I will be with you as you go on about these things. I will empower you to do these things to the very end. That means uh, until the time that Christ returns. If we can just go to our next slide. So in our church, um, when we talk about our strategy, you know, what, what is it that we're meant to be doing as a church people? And just by the way, um, this Saturday, the leadership group of CP10, um, it's called the EWC or the English Worship Committee, um, we'll get together for a whole day of planning. And one of the big things that we have been talking about for months and that we will finalize on that day is, first of all, affirming um, what our vision and mission is, and that hasn't really changed. That's very similar to the things we've been talking about. But at some stage, we have to get down to how will we go about this? And so... In my mind, whenever people have said, well, what are we meant to be doing? I've always had this sort of circular pattern. We are to reach out, bring in, build up, and send out. Um, that is the, the mission. That's the strategy. Um, we reach out to people who don't know Jesus with the love of Jesus and the words of Jesus. We draw them in, not only into this building, but into personal relationship, but ultimately into relationship with God through his son Jesus. We build them up, that is that teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. We teach them who Jesus is and what he was about. And then we send them out so that they now have become not only disciples, but disciple makers, and that pattern continues. Um, if you are here and you're a Christian, you are here as a result of the fact that this pattern has been happening for 2,000 years. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. Bring them in, build them up, and send them out. Okay, next slide. So I want to just do kind of a historical trace, and this has to do with our second Bible reading today, because following uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, we're told that he spoke about um, the Great Commission, um, but here we get a little bit more detail in Acts 1.8. Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit, when the personal power and presence of God that dwelt in me, when I send him upon you, then you will be my witnesses. And it's important to think about this even a little bit further. We're going to be talking um, a bit about the, the Jerusalem temple, but part of what he was saying is, now you as my people will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Spirit, in the same way that he once came down upon the temple and filled the temple with his glory, 
Now you will be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and my glory will shine through you. Next slide. And so last week when we were talking about the church, we heard that initially the first 3,000 converts um, would gather in homes, but they probably didn't have space for 3,000 in their home. But whenever they wanted to get together as the whole church, these thousands of people, they actually gathered in the temple courts. And it's kind of interesting to think about this. You, you probably think, how did the, all that work? Well, the temple in the first century was not only where people went to church, it was the center of Jewish life. So if you kind of think of you know, the center of Sydney, the CBD, or the town hall, that kind of area, kind of where people gathered was the temple courts, and there are these massive spaces where people could meet, enough where thousands of these Christians could gather in one corner of the temple courts, which was like a number of football fields all put together, and they would, they would worship there. Um, but it it's really significant in some ways that this was happening in the temple. Remember that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. Why in Jerusalem? Well, because we don't have time to do a huge, long biblical lesson, but those of you who remember when we talked about Moses and the people of God wandering through the wilderness, they had this tabernacle, this tent that was set up. And God's glory, his presence, would come down on that tabernacle and he would dwell in their midst. When they finally entered into the promised land, God said, now you don't have to have a tent anymore. And so they built a permanent building, um, the temple of God in the holy city of God. And this is where people would gather. And so now, when you have this group of 3,000 Christians who have seen God's Son, God in the flesh, and they had believed in Him and repented of their sins and been baptized and received their salvation, they were meeting in the temple courts. This was a great moment of fulfillment in the Bible. But then something else interesting happens, if we can go to our next slide. I want you to know that chapter, I mean, Bible chapters and verses didn't come along till later. So this is kind of a coincidence, but I've always called it the Acts 1-8, Acts 8-1 coincidence. So Acts 8-1-8, uh, go and make disciples of all nations. Acts 8-1 talks about this incredibly interesting paradox. This guy by the name of Saul who we later know as the Apostle Paul, when he is still an enemy of the church, he approves of the death of one of the great evangelists of the church, a guy by the name of Stephen. He oversees his execution, and at that moment, this great persecution breaks out against the Christians. So all of these Christians that once met together in the temple courts freely and openly, now they are scattered. And guess what they begin to do? They scatter throughout the surrounding region of Jerusalem called Judea. They scatter to places called Samaria, and they are scattered to the very ends of the earth. In fact, this guy, Saul, keeps chasing them down. <laughs> they go out further, and he hunts them down, and they go further out. But what we find out on our next slide 
is that as they're scattered, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Um, you know, a little bit like the dandelion, you, you blow on it, but guess what? These seeds go out, you know, it was better off sort of <laughs> from the standpoint of someone who, who doesn't want it to grow if it's all staying there in one little pod. But that was not God's plan. It, the church was scattered, and it went throughout all of these different regions. If we can just go to our next slide. So as we progress on in Acts, we get to chapter 11, and, you know, we're told, first of all, about how the, the gospel spread through Judea and into Samaria, and it, then it says, but there were some of them, that is, some of these disciples, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is, the Greeks, Perse always likes this because she, her family is from Cyprus and she is from Greek background. Um, they spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching um, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this church called Antioch, um, so it's not a Jewish church anymore, it is a Greek-speaking church, we're told that the very first time that Christians were called Christians was in this church. Because... Christian is a Greek term. I mean, the Jewish people would have called themselves Messiah followers, but the Greek term for Messiah is Christ. And so these Christians were called the, the Christians there for the very first time in this sort of multicultural and not specifically Jewish church. You know what becomes really interesting is that this guy, Saul, whose name is turned to Paul when he finally meets Jesus is, and is converted, when he begins one of his first pastoral ministries, he begins it in this church at Antioch. And this church at Antioch sends him, uh, Paul out and some of the other leaders out on the first Christian mission. So the guy who once scattered the Christian church and made them go all over the place, now sends this same Paul out to go and preach the gospel around the world, and he becomes one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all time. If we can just go to our next slide. So they go out with this thing called the gospel, and we need to take some time to actually think about it, because it's one of those words everyone hears about um, today, there's kind of been a resurrection in the word gospel because people will now use this term, you know, don't, th this is not gospel, that just means, you know, it's, it's not set in stone or anything that is sort of definitive, authoritative, you know, is called, you know, the, the gospel, the computer gospel, the whatever gospel. Once upon a time, this word had almost disappeared as this old English word, but it, now it's been kind of resurrected. So if we can just go to our next slide, we'll give you a quick linguistic lesson. So gospel is an old English term. It's translated um, from the word um, evangelion, which sounds like evangelism or evangelical. Um, that's the, the Greek term. And what they both mean is good news. And so gospel literally means God's good news about salvation through Jesus Christ. So just to let you know, when we're using this term, preaching the gospel, that's, that's literally what it means. We're preaching a message of good news from God about Jesus 
let's go to our next slide. So in some ways, the whole Bible, we need to understand that the whole Bible contains the gospel. The whole Bible is really about Jesus and God's salvation plan for the world. But if you were to sit down with someone and they said, okay, tell me what you believe, and you go and pick up one of our black Bibles, and you go, okay, page one. Somewhere in the midst of that, they're probably going to say, you know, I don't know that I have time for this. And so the gospel is this nice, neat, um, kind of punchy idea of uh, what, what's it all about. If you were going to summarize it for me, you know, in that elevator conversation, you know, between the first floor and the fifth floor, what is it? Um, this is how Paul began to, um, to reduce it. So can we go to the next slide? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this same Paul who once scattered the church, who now is the great evangelist, says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And this is his gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the reason we need all of the scriptures is that when someone says, well, who is this God, and who is this Jesus, and why did he die for sins, you need the rest of the Bible so that you can help understand and explain it. But if you want to put it in a nutshell, the gospel is about the life and the death and the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of humanity. If we can go to our next slide. So I'm just going to give you a couple of my favorite verses gospel verses. If you've not committed these to memory, please do. Um, when you have that moment when someone asks you what you believe, rather than going, oh man, how do I say that? Th this is why we've got the Bible. Um, so I, I say this one because John 3.16 has been stuck between every single goalpost at every American football game for as long as I've been alive. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that Anyone who believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. That is the gospel. Commit it to memory. But here is probably my personal favorite. If we can go to our next slide. Paul, the same Paul we've been talking about, once said to one of his um, fellow leaders, now here is a trustworthy saying. Commit this one to memory. And then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I think if you're going to memorize one, memorize this one. Because when someone says, okay, tell me in a nutshell, what do you believe? I say, God sent his son into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. And then people ask me, well, wait a minute, aren't, aren't you a pastor? I say, yes, I am. Well, how in the world are you the worst of sinners. And guess what that does? It gives me an opportunity to share my testimony. And, you know, there's a, a great line from an author by the name of G.K. Uh, Chesterton, who a uh, 20th century author, who once when, when he was asked, what is the problem with the world today? He said, the problem with the world today is me. In other words, you take me and you take my sin and my rebellion against God and my thought that what I do is right and what everyone else does is wrong, and you multiply that out times 7 billion people, and you've got the problem of the world. That, that's what 
is wrong in the world. A whole bunch of people who are in rebellion against God, who are proud and who think that they are the most important person and that their way is what is most important, but it really is not. And everyone is doing their own thing rather than God's thing, and you multiply my problem times seven billion, and you've got the problem of the world. And that's why I love this verse. It just gives a chance for, not to me to say, I'm, I'm a really good person, and I know a bunch of Christians, and we're all great people, and you should not be like you are. You should be like we are. No, I know a whole bunch of sinners who are just as bad as me who gather together on a Sunday to praise God and thank him for forgiving us because we need it, because we are the worst. We're the worst of sinners. So that is what the gospel is. We can just move on. I want to finish today by talking a little bit about this concept of the salt of the earth. I said I wanted us to think a little bit today about us being a gathered church. Remember at the beginning of Christian history, these 3,000 people gathered together in the temple courts, and there was something incredibly important about that, that there was this presence that people could say, who in the world are those 3,000 people who are gathering in the temple courts and praising God together. But Jesus didn't just say, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. I mean, he was speaking at that stage to the people in Jerusalem. The light of the world, a city set on a hill. You had this great temple that was made out of silver and gold set up on the top of a hilltop when the sun would hit it and people were traveling from a distance. They'd go, we're almost to Jerusalem. That light on the hill, that city on the hill, we can see it. We know that we're almost there. He didn't just say you are a city on a hill. He said you are the salt of the earth. And that's a different kind of image. Cities are where people gather. Salt, um, to quote a, a famous evangelist, um, you know, is meant to be taken out of the salt shaker. It's effective and it's doing its job when it's out of the shaker and when it's being scattered where it needs to go. Jesus said, you're not just the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Next slide. I want us to think about this because I don't know if you recognize it, but this is Town Hall. I mean, you know, the Town Hall, St. Andrew's Cathedral back in the old days. Have you ever thought about architecturally why these two buildings sit next to each other? because they represent the two great powers of Sydney, the church and the state. And guess one, which one was built first? The church. <laughs> that went up first. Town Hall came a few decades later. Because back in the day, when you were in the, what was then the middle of Sydney, there were these two great reminders built by one of, you know, Sydney's great architects, that the church and the state, we're there together because, of course, Australia is a Christian nation and we want to follow God's ways and we want to follow biblical ways. That was back in the days when 80 to 90 percent of people still identified as Christian. And so Christianity had this very central place in Australian culture. That's not the case anymore. Um, a lot has changed in a hundred years or more. If we can go to our next slide. 
I don't know how many of you um, remember this, but when I was a kid, you would do this little thing of this is the church and this is the steeple and you open the door and you see all the people. Um, because that's what church was all about. You went inside church, you went inside the cathedral, and that's where the Christians gathered. And everyone knew, yeah, well, that's, that's that church that's there in the middle of town. And that's where all the Christians go. And if I want to know God, that's where I go. It's very fortuitous that this has turned out to be today because this is not where people gather anymore. Can we go to our next slide? This is where people in Sydney gather today. Uh, later on, ANZ Stadium, at the beach, whatever the case. You know, when y you guys like me, you might go on holidays or whatever and you find yourself out on a Sunday morning in an unusual situation. You think I'm, I'm normally inside of here on a Sunday morning, but now I'm out and about and I think, oh, this is where all the people are. <laughs> they're in the cafes and they're at the beach and they're gathered at different events and different festivals. And we know within Australia over a series of decades that church, the idea that you would go and meet in a building on a Sunday morning and hear sermons and sing songs is just an oddity. Why would anyone do it? People don't gather um, in the middle of Town Hall and St. Andrew's Cathedral anymore. They gather in different ways. We can go to our next slide. And a lot of it has to do with the late Paul Harvey, famous news anchor. I don't know if you were aware, but he actually claimed to be a Christian, but not a churchgoer. And he once famously said, I believe in God and Jesus Christ, but not so much organized religion. And in saying so, he was speaking to something that so many Australians say today. Um, if we can just go to our next slide. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I'm, I'm always saying this, I'm, I'm a great fan of statistics to a, to a certain point, and I just love seeing you know, what people's attitudes are, and I know statistics have their limitations and all of that. But I was going back through and, and doing some more up-to-date research, so this came out just in 2018, um, but more than 4 in 10, 40% of Australians have said that Religion and faith and spirituality is important to them in shaping their lives and their values. Forty percent. That's you know, four out of every ten people that you cross and you know, pass by in the street. And I went and did some more reading, some more research, and it's harder to get sort of up-to-date figures, but the majority of people who live in this country believe in the concept of a creator God who brought people and everything in this world into being. The majority of people in this country believe in a guy by the name of Jesus Christ who they call in some way, shape, or form God's son. More than 50%. The majority of people in this country have some concept of divine punishment and reward, heaven and hell, some idea of life after death. The majority of people in this country have those concepts, but they have no idea what it all means or how to make sense of it all. But we live in this place where there is still a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. There's just not a lot of desire to go to church. 
because from the standpoint of most people, that is something that is out of touch, it's out of date, it is irrelevant. But if you want to talk to me about spiritual things, well, I might be open for a conversation over a cup of tea. We can just go to our next slide. So it goes back to what Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And I wanted to just conclude with this, because last week uh, I mentioned to you that I've just been doing more reading on the church in Iran. And it's a fascinating thing, and I, during the last week I've been doing some more reading, and as much as anyone can know, there seems to be a lot of things that, um, that are pretty clear. And one statistic that just keeps on coming out all the time is that it's probably the fastest growing church in the world. That there may now be as many as 100,000 Christians living in a place where it is completely illegal to be a Christian. That it is not run by any denomination. There are no church buildings because you cannot have church buildings. The majority of the followers are women, and the majority of the leaders are women. And people go out each day, and they meet up with their friends, and they try to live lives that point to the goodness of God. They try to show forgiveness in a place where there's very little forgiveness. They try to show kindness in a place where there is very little kindness. They demonstrate hope in a place where there is nothing but hopelessness. People have given up on all religion in Iran. And when people say, what are you so joyful about? What do you have to be hopeful for? What, what makes you get up in the morning and, and keep going and keep loving and smile. And they say, because God is love and he made us to love one another. God has a plan for our lives. God forgives. God sent his only son into the world to forgive you and to love you and to give us a new hope and a new life beyond all of the corruption that you can see all around you. And people are responding in droves. And it has nothing to do with a building it has nothing to do with a for formal service. It has to do with disciples who live godly lives, salty lives, light lives in a dark world and who are always prepared to share the hope that is within them. And that's what it means to be disciples and share the Great Commission. I'm going to invite our singers to come up and we're going to sing a song of response and then we'll have communion.